over the past three years, a spotlight has been shown on the Chinese Communist Party's bio-warfare program. And regardless of whether the COVID virus itself was a part of that program or not, the fact remains that the Chinese Communist Party has a large-scale and very viable bio-warfare program in place, of which the Wuhan lab was just a small component. And one of the most shocking things that we know they are developing is a biological weapon that can target and attack the DNA strands specific to certain racial groups. Now, obviously, that sounds very conspiratorial and something like out of a science fiction movie. But what's truly shocking about it is the fact that it's true. The Chinese Communist Party is indeed developing weapons that target specific race and ethnicity markers, which might all of a sudden make it a bit more clear as to why the Chinese Communist Party has been able to stitch together the largest collection of American DNA profiles in the world. Even larger than what the U.S. government has been able to collect. They've done this, by the way, not only through good old-fashioned hacking, but also through more, you can say, traditional channels, such as purchasing the data from DNA sequencing companies. But sometimes, they don't even have to purchase the data. As an example of what I mean by that, this right here is BGI, one of the largest manufacturers of prenatal tests around the entire world. And wouldn't you know it, this Chinese company, according to reporting from Reuters, has been sending the genetic data of pregnant women from 52 different countries over to the Chinese military. Now, you might be wondering and asking yourself, what use does the Chinese military have for this type of data? And the answer is, unfortunately, rather simple. And it has to do with a certain concept called precision medicine. Now, the positives of precision medicine are rather obvious. It's sort of in the name. If a doctor has information about a person's genetic makeup, then they can tailor their treatments perfectly to that individual person. As an example of what precision medicine looks like in practice, well, in the year 2004, scientists at the University of Wisconsin, they injected what they called naked DNA directly into the veins of lab rats for easy access to the muscle cells. Here was an excerpt from the research paper from the scientists at the University of Wisconsin. Quote, in the experiments, the scientists did not use viruses to carry genes inside cells. Instead, they used naked DNA. Naked DNA poses fewer immune issues because unlike viruses, it does not contain a protein coat, hence the term naked, which means it cannot move freely from cell to cell and integrate into the chromosome. As a result, naked DNA does not cause antibody responses or genetic reactions that can render the procedure harmful. The injections yielded substantial, stable levels of gene activity throughout the leg muscles in healthy animals, with minimal side effects. The lead scientist in that group then noted that, quote, we detected gene expression in all leg muscle groups, and the DNA stayed in muscle cells indefinitely. Meaning that scientists can take specific genes or specific proteins and then inject them into just the right cells based on that cell's DNA makeup. Now, whatever your thoughts are on gene therapy, at the very least, these Wisconsin-based scientists do appear to be doing this research for benign purposes, to tailor the strands of DNA for specific individuals to treat specific diseases. However, listen to what a colonel within the People's Liberation Army, listen to how he described this exact breakthrough in gene therapy that took place over in the University of Wisconsin. Quote, University of Wisconsin scientists have made exogenous naked DNA and injected it into veins for easy access into muscle cells for gene therapy. By combining this knowledge and particle gun technology, we could create a microbullet out of a one micron tungsten or gold ion on whose surface plasma DNA or naked DNA could be precipitated and deliver the bullet via a gunpowder explosion, electron transmission, or high-pressured gas to penetrate the body's surface. We could then release DNA molecules to integrate with the host cells through blood circulation and cause disease or injury by controlling genes. 
That, on the flip side, is rather hostile. And it's also not theoretical, because for one, as a part of China's five-year plan regarding precision medicine, they made a specific point to mention that while they will be collecting the world's DNA, no one should be allowed to collect Chinese people's DNA. Here's specifically what they wrote under a subsection called Regulations of the People's Republic of China on the Management of Human Genetic Resources. Quote, National security focus includes special limitations on foreign access. Foreign organizations, individuals, and their institutions established or actually controlled shall not collect or preserve human genetic resources in China within the territory of our country and may not provide human genetic resources of our country abroad. Meaning that while they collect the world's DNA, no one, no organization is allowed to touch the DNA of Chinese people. Furthermore, the Chinese state has dumped a massive amount of money into these precision medicine programs to the tune of about $9.2 billion. Compare that, by the way, to America's precision medicine initiative, which saw only an initial investment of $215 million. Meaning that China has pumped in at least 43 times more money into these programs than the U.S. And that's, by the way, only the money that we know about. And China, it's worth mentioning, is not like a normal country with a clear separation between the private sector, the government, and the military. Instead, the reality is that if it's in China, it belongs, all of it belongs to the Chinese Communist Party. And so, keeping that in mind, let's take another quick look at what that colonel in the People's Liberation Army said about the future of weapons that the Chinese state is currently developing. Quote, Humaneness in the conduct of war has become the focus of attention recently, and weapons of mass destruction are banned to reduce casualties. The times call for new kinds of weapons, and modern biotechnology can contribute to such weapons. In the near future, when military biotechnology is highly developed, modern biotechnology will have a revolutionary influence on the organization of military power with its more direct effects on the main entity of war, human beings. Modern biotechnology offers an enormous potential military advantage. Meaning, in short order, that while we here in the U.S. are busy devoting our national conversations to pronouns and which specific bathroom a person should be using, the Chinese have put together a giant database of American DNA, and they are currently developing bioweapons that are capable of targeting people based on their DNA, such that, theoretically at least, they could take out an entire ethnic group without any damage to the surrounding environment. Now, while I was over in Washington, D.C. just last week, I had the opportunity to sit down and speak about these DNA-based weapons with Mr. Gordon Chang, the author of the seminal book, The Coming Collapse of China. And he described to me how, based on his research, these ethnic-specific pathogens, meaning pathogens that can target specific ethnicities, could essentially leave China as the world's only viable civilization. And take a listen. With that data, they are developing what they call specific ethnic genetic attacks. This was written in a landmark article um, in the National, Chinese National Defense University's publication, The Science of Military Strategy. These are uh, attacks that are going to leave the Chinese immune, but sicken and kill everybody else. And this is, you know, it's, it's striking when you think about it, but uh, Jason Crow, who's a Democratic senator from Colorado, last year at the Aspen Security Forum actually talked about how it is now theoretically possible to develop a pathogen that will kill just one person. So the science is really evolving. And what if you want to find the biggest collection of DNA profiles of Americans, you're not going to find it in America. You're going to find it in China. And that's what they're doing. And also, you know, they have artificial intelligence. The more data you put into an AI system, the better it is. And so they're feeding all of that data into that. But specifically, they are looking at developing pathogens that will be civilization killers. So 
with regard to the DNA specific bioweapons that, that they're developing, is that just theor- theory? Or do we know that they're actually implementing at, at least the testing and, and um, development of these types of bacteria yeah. or viruses? No, this is not theory because they talk about uh, what they're doing. And of course, we saw what happened at the Wuhan Institute of Virology with coronavirus. That looks like a biological weapons program. You got to remember that uh, December 2019 or January 2020, Beijing sent its top biological weapons expert, Major General Chen Wei, to head the BSL-4 unit at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And I believe her job there is to clean up evidence of any biological weapons program. So uh, I don't know that, but that's the logical inference. Um, So really what we're talking about is a biological weapons program, which is well along the path. When you just said that, it it kind of a light bulb went off in my mind where it seems like what happened in Wuhan with the coronavirus laboratory, that being accidentally released, at least that's the assessment of many people now, including high ranking officials in the government, that seems to have been just an, an accidental, essentially warning shot. Like, hey, we have this one facility here that happens to be a coronavirus lab, but we have the, perhaps other labs that we're also testing other drugs. We just don't know about them because n- none have escaped thus far. Is that, yeah. is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I mean... The Wuhan Institute of Virology is, is not the only biological weapons lab that China has. At that time, it was the only BSL-4 uh, unit. Um, so it was clearly the, uh, the, the most important of the labs, but I don't believe it was the only one. All right, just a super quick word before we move on to the next segment. If you happen to be listening to this episode as a podcast on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or some of the other platforms, it would be great if you could take a quick moment and leave the show a review, and ideally a five-star review. Although, of course, I'll let you decide for yourself how many stars you want to give us. Because on these podcast platforms, it is the reviews that really count and that have the algorithm either share the show to more people or not. And so I hope you take a quick moment and consider leaving us a favorable review. And now let's head on back to the program. Here is a short addendum to the interview, wherein Josh, who is another journalist here at the Epic Times, was able to ask a few follow-up questions regarding these DNA-based weapons. In 2017, China's National Defense University, in its authoritative science of military strategy, actually wrote an article about a new type of biological warfare of, quote, specific ethnic genetic attacks. Now, Bill Gertz of the Washington Times actually has reported that American officials believe that the Chinese are actually working on such pathogens. And the Chinese themselves have been very open about it because for at least a half decade, a little bit longer, they've been actually talking about these ethnic specific pathogens. And that's why I talk about a civilization killer, because this could end up leaving China as the world's only viable civilization because all non-Chinese would be either sickened or killed by this. What would the interest of the CCP be in, you know, as you mentioned, using a civilization killer on much of the world if they were to kill all, say, non-Chinese or people of any one specific uh, racial background? Because, of course, that's targeting DNA strands or changing viruses to target specific DNA strands. I I guess one, one big question would be, why would they do that? What would the interest be for them? they would be able to rule the world. We know that the Chinese have imported um, the notion of uh, comprehensive national power, CNP. And CNP is a Soviet concept um, that um, is a collection of metrics to rank countries according to their power. And China wants to be number one. 
Now, there's two ways to get to be number one. One of them is you can strengthen your own country, and every country should be doing that. And the second is you weaken everybody else. And I think that Xi Jinping, after he saw what the coronavirus did to devastate China, then decided that he was going to weaken everybody else. Because by weakening everybody else, he could actually increase China's CMP ranking. And that is the maliciousness of the Chinese system. Hmm. Now, with the idea of doing of making bioweapons targeted at specific DNA strands related to racial groups, I know a lot of people might say, oh, that, just, that sounds too sci-fi for me, it sounds too far-fetched. Um, how could we prove that that's a viable approach to making biological weapons? Well, all we have to do, Josh, is just to read what uh, Chinese military researchers say. We, we don't have to speculate about this. Um, I think that this would be a hard task to do, but we do know that certain um, racial and ethnic groups are more susceptible or less susceptible to certain pathogens. How is this possible? I guess, I guess, what would you tell people in terms of how is, it, how is this possible? Well, it's just possible in that our DNA of humans is alike, but there are differences. And, and so, for instance, um, my wife comes from Hong Kong, and she told me, um, you know, during flu season when she was growing up, Chinese people would get flu, but it, either they didn't get it or it was very, very mild. But the flu did affect uh, the British and other foreigners in Hong Kong, um, much more severely. Hmm. And so that is something that is an example of what can happen. Um, and you can weaponize that. So China's working on this and they're devoting money. They're writing about it, uh, speaking about it, which means that we've got to be concerned that uh, they'll eventually find something. Now, as I said, I don't know what the state of their um, development is, but we do know they're working on it. Hmm. Now, you mentioned something interesting, which is that you said that China, the Chinese Communist Party, has the largest data bank of American DNA, even larger than what we have in the United States. I, I mean, how, how did they get this? How, how did they collect this? That's a great question. And they did it a number of ways. So, for instance, they bought the company Complete Genomics, which had a large database of uh, data, uh, DNA profiles of Americans. Also, there are about uh, 13 or so or 23 or so um, Chinese or Chinese linked companies that are accredited, uh, accredited to do DNA profiling and sequencing of Americans. So if you go to an ancestry company, um, chances are your DNA is being sequenced by a Chinese company. And the third way they do this is they just hack. Um, they just steal. Um, and, and that's why I think that they were going after, for instance, health insurance companies and, and um, others. So there's a number of different ways they can do this. Oh, and one other, and, and this we really should talk about. We have these technical cooperation agreements between American research institutes and Chinese ones. So for instance, Johns Hopkins has one. So there they get it above the board. But through many different ways, they're collecting um, the DNA profiles of Americans. So you're mentioning private businesses, ancestry companies processing DNA data in China, uh, academic cooperation programs, all these things. How is this allowed to happen? If, is, is it that we don't recognize this as a threat? Is this just seen as academic research or business? How is this being allowed to happen? Um, 
that's perplexing to me. But, um, you know, there's this view that uh, that's been prevalent for a long time, that we should cooperate with China. And so, therefore, we did not impose rules against cooperation of this sort. And that means, especially after COVID-19, um, we should be cutting off all of these linkages. Um, we should be severing them immediately because this is a national security matter. Remember, we've got about 631, 632,000 Americans that have been killed by this disease. Now, I remember during the Trump administration, there was something really interesting that took place along these lines, which is they made restrictions on U.S. military personnel from using a lot of these ancestry-like programs. And a big question came up, why would they care whether American soldiers or troops uh, get, you know, try to find out what their historic, what their racial backgrounds are using these ancestry programs. But a lot of China watchers uh, did point to the fact that the dad was being processed in China as maybe a reason for that. Uh, do you remember that assessment? And do you remember what the reasoning was behind that? I don't know what the stated reasoning was, but um, we certainly wouldn't want China to know the DNA profiles of the American military. And, and it's, it's not just the American military we should be concerned about. We should be concerned about the DNA profile of every American because China can develop diseases that will hobble our society. It's not just the people in our armed forces that are important. It's every American. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope that you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to check out more content, then you can do so over on EpicTV.com. That's E-P-O-C-H-TV.com, which is the no censorship video platform that was set up by the Epic Times. And on there, we publish exclusive episodes that you won't find here on this podcast platform. Again, that's EpicTV.com. Otherwise, again, if you can take a super quick moment to leave us a review, ideally a five-star review, that would be much appreciated since, again, these podcast platforms, they weigh those reviews a lot when choosing which shows to recommend to new users. All right, then until next time, let me head back to my desk and work through the research for the next episode. As always, until next time, stay informed and stay free. Stick around. What have we not done that we should be doing according to you? Well, I don't think the administration or NATO as a whole have really declared clearly what the goals in Ukraine are. The stated position of every NATO member is Ukraine should be restored to its full sovereignty and territorial integrity. All right, if that really is our position, let's say so, and then, having stated the goals, determine a strategy that will get us there. And we've had no strategy. I think people are familiar with this long series of debates about this weapon system, that weapon system. Do we supply MiG planes? Do we su supply HIMARS? Do we supply ATACMS? Do we supply Abrams tanks? That reflects the absence of a strategy. The strategy is assembling the assets you need to achieve the goals and then going and doing it. And that's not what we've done. The effect of that has been to prolong this war uh, increase the casualties and damage to Ukraine and give Russia more of a chance over time as the much larger power in the conflict to make up for its appalling performance in the opening months of the war. The thesis of your Wall Street Journal piece is that we're not letting them win. How do you define winning? 
Well, again, the state, the stated position, which, which we may not believe, maybe the White House doesn't believe that our stated position is really what they want, but it means, as the Prime Minister of Finland uh, said a couple of months ago, very, very crisply, how does this end? It ends with all Russian troops out of Ukraine. Ukraine as it existed 13 months ago or Ukraine plus Crimea? I guess that's my question. Yeah, look, I, I think the only statement that, that admits of any possibility of stability in the space of the former Soviet Union is the territorial uh, sovereignty that Ukraine held at the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991. And let's be clear, the first, last, and probably only democratically elected president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, agreed to the Soviet Union splitting along the lines of the internal borders of the republics in the Belovozhye agreement with the presidents of Ukraine and Belarus in, in 1991. Russia agreed to it. Now, if Russia wants to pull out of the agreement, that's fine. That means the border of every other former uh, constituent part of the Soviet Union is up for grabs. Will you respond to critics who say, and, and I literally read this in a comment appended to the journal, that Ambassador Bolton has never met a war that he doesn't like? Well, that's, that's a kind of simple-minded response. I look after American interest. My, my philosophy uh, is derived uh, from Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, who believed in peace through strength. And I think for some people, it's just hard to understand that it's not American strength that's provocative, it's American weakness that's provocative. I never learned why media's Welcome back. The Pentagon released new video today showing the events that forced the U.S. to down its own drone into the Black Sea, further escalating tensions between Russia and the United States. The declassified video shows two Russian jets approaching the drone while dumping jet fuel into the air and onto the drone. According to the Pentagon, a Russian jet then collided with the drone. It's something Russia had denied. As we learn more about this incident, three U.S. officials tell NBC News that the approval for this aggressive action came from the highest levels of the Kremlin. Though one official said there was no in indication that sign-off came from Putin himself. Our Pentagon correspondent, uh, Courtney Cuby, who had that exclusive reporting, joins me next. Courtney, that is a, a pretty big charge, and it seems to be an odd thing. Like, would the Kremlin order two jets to harass an American drone? And if they are, that's a... That's a that's a pretty big deal for a really small thing. It is. So it, it answers one of the questions that we have. Every time there's any kind of an intercept where there's more of a, concert, a confrontation than just a normal run-of-the-mill intercept in the skies. And that is, could this possibly be some sort of a rogue military pilot or maybe even a rogue mm -hmm. military commander telling these Russian pilots to do something that's slightly more aggressive, whatever that may be? Well, in this case, we now know, according to these, these U.S. officials, that in fact, the highest levels of the Russian civilian leadership, not just military, but civilian leadership, approved this more aggressive action. Now, what the question is, 
to what end? And, and that's really more of an assessment here as opposed to some certainty. There could be, among the assessments that we were told is it's possible that the dumping of the jet fuel was to obscure the camera, maybe to try to throw the drone off course. There are even some who say it's possible that this was just to impose another cost on the U.S. So at a time when members of Congress are, are increasingly talking about the cost of this war and, mm -hmm. and, and questioning, you know, the idea of a blank check for Ukraine, well, this is a very real cost that this was imposed on the U.S. in the, in the name of a 30 plus million dollar drone that's now sitting at the bottom of the Black Sea. So again, all of that is an assessment. But what these officials told us is they are confident that the highest levels of civilian Russian leadership approved this aggressive action. And it, it's are, is there any chance we're going to beat the Russians to our own drone or we really believe there's nothing for them to learn? It's too late. The Russians have already beaten the mm -hmm. U.S. to the. I mean, they're, they're there. We know now, and the, the Pentagon said that today on camera, on the record, mm -hmm. uh, uh, General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon press secretary, saying that they now believe that the Russians are attempting to gather up some of the debris. He wouldn't say whether they've actually done so or not, but they've been on site there from very soon after the drone went down, not just on the um, on the sea with their naval assets, but also in the air, rotary and fixed wing assets. So they've already been there. Cordy, do you get a sense that they were hoping to inspire a kinetic response from us? It doesn't seem that way. So, I mean, the, the aggressive behavior, um, if it had had what it appears to be the intention of driving the drone away, maybe curtailing some of the surveillance mm -hmm. assets or surveillance capabilities that it had, um, the, the, the one thing that the U.S. officials tell us is it, it appears based off of the video that this was pilot error, inept piloting, and that that was what caused the actual collision here, that that does not appear to be intentional. Again, they can't know because they, weren't, they aren't in the minds right. of these pilots, but it, that doesn't appear to be intentional. And it does appear now that the, neither side is talking about any kind of a military escalation. So it seems as if this was not, this was not intended to spark a wider conflict. What I'm trying to figure out here is that a lot of people are probably thinking their own screens are pixelating when they see that, uh, when they see this video from the Pentagon. It actually is the Pentagon's video pixelating there. Anyway, Courtney Cuby uh, on the beat for us there. Courtney, thank you. Joining thank me now on set here is Ambassador John Bolton, who's of course the former National Security Advisor to uh, former President Trump. Uh, Ambassador, let me start with you. Uh, you have a degree in Diplo speak or in Intel speak. So when I hear when you hear the phrase highest levels of government on the domestic side. How do you interpret that? Well, the implication is that it's Putin, right. or if not, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister. And it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, uh, as long as we're speculating on what they had in mind here, I think the Russians have had a pretty successful run of intimidating the United States and NATO during the course of this war. Mm -hmm. And a brushback against our drone might have been one more effort to intimidate. Now, obviously, no sane pilot intentionally collides with another vehicle. That, that seems to be incompetent. But, right? but likewise, yeah. it's not accidental or a rogue pilot dumping jet fuel on top of that drone. They're lucky they all didn't go up in a big ball of fire. So I think it's credible that it did come from a very high level. And I think it's probably intended to say to the Americans, you're, you're gonna, we're, we're going to push you back here as we have in other areas. And our surveillance of the Black Sea is essentially an arm of a Ukrainian military intelligence right now, isn't it? Well, I hope it is. Yeah, it should I mean, be. it should be in theory, uh, but, right? But yeah. let's let's be clear. We're entitled to fly in international airspace and do anything we want, mm -hmm. uh, as are the Russians. So so this was this was a deliberately pr provocative act. And I think it's a mistake to give a relaxed response. Yeah, I was just going to say, what would you be advising? You know, um, it, 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 if, if President Biden asked you, just give me your two cents. 
What would you advise him to do on this one? I'd throw out 30 or 40 Russian diplomats. So you would do a response like that? But yes. Do it not, here. Not a military not, response. Not a, but a but diplomatic response. But I would make response. it clear it was unacceptable, and I'd keep the pressure on. Um, I want to move to why we invited you here, because it seems as if this is something you predicted. It was on this program. You said you thought there was a virus of isolationism running through the Republican Party. One could already now the two leading candidates, the most likely scenario right now, if you believe all the polling, is you're going to have President Biden facing somebody who doesn't believe we should be in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, what does that mean for the Republican Party? Well, I think it's very inconclusive politically at this point, because I think the early polling isn't necessarily going to tell right. you Fair the enough. direction things are going to go. Uh, I, I don't, frankly, I was very disappointed in what Ron DeSantis said. Let me just say that right, right at the mm -hmm. beginning. I don't understand the political logic of it before we get to the, the bad strategy. Okay. Uh, what, what kind of voter is going to say, you know, I was going to vote for Donald Trump, but then I heard Ron DeSantis had exactly the same position on Ukraine as Donald Trump, so now I'm going to vote for Ron DeSantis. What, mm -hmm. what is the voter that he's trying to appeal to? Uh, I think it's a mistake politically. We'll, we'll see. Trump mm -hmm. is already beating him like a drum for being a flip-flopper, which is not, not, a good, not a good look. Um, so whatever the political strategy was, I think that was wrong. And in terms of geopolitics, I think it was badly wrong. Well, let's talk about this. He calls it a territorial dispute. He, so let's go. Let's, let me play this game here. Governor DeSantis calls you up, says, hey, look, I don't I'm, I'm learning more here. Uh, I think this is a territorial dispute. And you would say, of course, it's not a territorial dispute, but it reflects his antecedent error. Uh, of saying it was not a vital United States national interest, which it manifestly is. It has been bedrock American policy since 1945 that peace and security on the European continent uh, are important to the United States, important economically, important politically. In the terms of the NATO treaty itself, important civilizationally. Uh, so a threat to Ukraine is, is a threat to peace and security in Europe and, yeah. and to our allies. Uh, this is an act of unprovoked aggression. And let's be clear, the yeah. Russians don't think this is a territorial dispute. They think it's about recreating the Russian Empire. The Ukrainians don't think it's a territorial dispute. They think it's about their sovereignty and independence. And I think there's a real important analogy here between Ukraine and Taiwan. Well, it's fun. let me pause you there, because that's exactly where I was about to go, because I actually want to put up his whole statement, because this is where his statement is actually in conflict. On, and it's on the issue you're about to bring up. While the, here's what Ron DeSantis, the longer statement he sent to Tucker Carlson. While the U.S. has many vital national interests, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness within our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. He clearly splits the two. Does not see a connection between Ukraine and between the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. It just seemed, it seemed like you can't think of one thing as a global threat and not see it over here. That's, that's where I'm coming down, but where, where, what say you? Well, let, let me address one other thing. When he says it's not a vital national interest, then he go, goes on to say, I won't supply F-16s or mm -hmm. uh, weaponry that can strike in Russian territory. Well, look, if it's not a vital national interest, we shouldn't supply anything. It's just not worth it at all. Uh, well, that was the question I was going to have for him. How do you get out? Well, so, but let's come back to yeah. this one. The, the issue is whether the question for both Ukraine and Taiwan is, shall they exist as free and independent states or shall they not? Mm -hmm. If we believe 
that the deterrence of aggression against countries where America has an interest, and we have a significant interest in Ukraine and a significant interest in Taiwan, if we don't think that deterring against that is worthwhile, then we're prepared to give up both Ukraine and Taiwan. They are conceptually and strategically inseparable, in my view. Um, I want to get back to the politics of this, because one of the things I was telling my staff, I said, you know, whenever there's a conflict, whenever there's a war that breaks out, the easiest political position to take is to be against it, because eventually that'll be the popular position. It's, I mean, if you see it, other than World War II, it does feel like over time that is. It's very possible in two years, this is a country that doesn't, is done, doesn't want to do it, and elect somebody that says, hey, no, pull back. How would we pull back? What would that look like, and what do you think the repercussions would be? Well, it would be surrendering Ukrainian territory to Russia. There's no doubt about it, and hoping the bear would go away. That, that isn't going to happen. But I think part of our problem here is the ineptness of the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. What exactly are our goals in Ukraine? If you ask them, when should we negotiate with the Russians, they say, well, that's up to the Ukrainians to decide. So did the president of the United States delegate his commander in chief authority to President right. Zelensky? I, I understand Ukraine's got goals. What are America's goals? Uh, our official position is we want to see the restoration of full sovereignty mm -hmm. and territorial integrity. Those are the goals. Let's reaffirm them and let's say, what strategy are we going to put together uh, to achieve that and end this argument about one weapon system after another. If Biden doesn't think those are our goals, he needs to say that so we can have a debate. It does seem as if that if you believe the whole goal is to restore the, 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 the entire territory, including Crimea, then what should we be doing right now? Giving them a lot more than we are? A absolutely. And I think, I think this is where the Russians have, with incredible success, deterred the United States going back almost to the beginning of the war when the, the Poles said, what if we give our MiGs to the Ukrainians? Which and they've now done. The Secretary of State said yes, and the President said no. Why? Because afraid of, they're afraid of escalation in a wider war. I'd like to say, afraid of what escalation? The Russians are doing so well in Ukraine. They have a spare army somewhere they're going to use elsewhere against NATO. The threat of nuclear escalation, I think, has is, is been a bluff so far. In hindsight, all it's done is slow our ability to... And that's a critical yeah, point. Yeah, hasn't it? The longer this, they have gotten us to slow roll our support of Ukraine. Precisely. And that has lengthened the war. It's pushed us into what is effectively now a military stalemate. Let's be clear. Russia's suffering much higher mm -hmm. casualties than Ukraine, uh, maybe two to one ratio, according yeah. to the Washington Post. Russia's three and a half times bigger than Ukraine. Do the math. Who do you think wins a war of attrition? Look, you have said one of the ways you would end up running for president is if you thought nobody was here to make this argument. <laughs> Sounds like there's not going to be a lot of people to make your argument. Are you going to run? Well, I like the argument that I'm making, and I think it's important to make. I think on foreign policy, people want their leaders to explain what the objectives are and how we're going to get there. Biden has failed to do it. It has opened the door to the isolationists who say we shouldn't be there at all. This is a tragedy in the making. What's your timeline? Well, I'm still thinking about it, and it's a complex process. I looked at it in 2016. Yep. I'm not going to do it frivolously one way or the other. Fair enough. John Bolton, former uh, National Security Advisor and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Good to see you. Glad to be with you.
reasonably people can agree the International Criminal Court uh, indictment of, of Vladimir Putin or arrest warrant is kind of laughable and meaningless. That said, um, she's meeting with Putin is not meaningless. And I keep feeling when you see Putin doing all this stuff, he has not yet met any real pushback from the United States and the West as he keeps ratcheting up his bad behavior. Right. Well, I think one of the problems that uh, the United States and NATO have is they're not able to articulate uh, what their goals are. I mean, if the stated position of the United States is Ukraine should be restored to its full sovereignty and territorial integrity. If that's the goal, let's reaffirm it and let's develop a strategy. Let's allocate resources as necessary to get the job done. That's not what we've done over the past year. Putin has deterred us. You know, we failed to deter the invasion, but constantly there's this fear, maybe Putin will escalate. Uh, and it's really, it's prolonged the war, it's prolonged the agony for uh, Ukraine, and it's uh, given Russia time to make up for the, for the terrible military mistakes it's made during the course of the war. Is there a chance that both Putin, Xi, and the Ayatollah all come out of this stronger as they have now been forced to cooperate more? Well, look, I think there's a growing uh, geopolitical realignment going on. I've seen this for some time, Russia being drawn closer to China in a partnership where, unlike the Cold War, uh, China is clearly the dominant partner. North Korea and Iran have been brought into it. Uh, it's still growing. But, you know, I think right now you'd have to say the big winner in this war is China. And it'll be true no matter how it turns out. If Russia uh, defeats Ukraine, conquers the whole thing, or takes another big bite out of it, uh, China's ally has won. That's a plus for China. If Russia is defeated and is drawn, uh, is pushed more close, close, closely to China, that's a victory for China, too. Yeah, they, Xi Jinping wins, wins either way here. Let, look at this from a domestic political lens in that this has split uh, the Republican Party, certainly in terms of, of how to approach Ukraine. Uh, a couple of the more vocal members of the Republican Party on both sides of this. Take a listen. Becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. I think the majority opinion among Senate Republicans is that uh, the United States had a, has a vital national security interest there in stopping Russian aggression. We're paying for a war, a proxy war with Russia, when I've never seen Putin actually show in any detail his plans to invade Europe. No one has shown me that. We haven't just invested money in Ukraine. We've invested our prestige and our credibility. So if we were to cut and run now, if we were to walk away from our commitment to Ukraine, the Chinese would point to that and say to our allies, how are you going to count on the United States? They're not going to be there. What's behind the divide? Well, I think uh, there's a virus of isolationism loose in the Republican Party. I attribute it to Donald Trump. He hates Ukraine. That's why this is the focal point. Uh, the fact is, we do have key American national interests at stake here. It's been a bedrock of our foreign policy since 1945 that a safe and prosperous Europe is good for the United States. That's still true today. And if unprovoked aggression like Russia's can prevail against Ukraine, 
uh, everybody else is in danger. I'm prepared to argue this on the basis of American national interest. We're not doing this as a favor to anybody. We're doing it because it benefits us. Biden's not making that case. His defense secretary said a couple of days ago that, uh, that we were fighting this war uh, with Ukraine to defend the rules-based international order. I think most Americans would say, the what? Uh, we're in this because American interests are at stake and the uh, actions we take will reverberate not only in Europe, but around the world. China's watching this very closely. If we don't defend a, a country under attack on the continent of Europe, I think the Chinese will conclude it's very unlikely we'll come to Taiwan's defense. Yeah, or, or the defense of any of our other allies. And to that point, uh, we, get, we head into the weekend with Vladimir Putin having uh, his military downed a U.S. aircraft. It hasn't happened since 1960 with U, the, U, the U-2 shoot down Gary Powers' plane, U-2 being the spy plane, not the band. Uh, when we think about this, has his Vladimir Putin yet seen, or does he need to see, some type of meaningful response from the United States? Well, he absolutely see, needs to see a meaningful response, and he hasn't seen one to date. Uh, the Pentagon is saying things like, well, we're not entirely sure it was intentional. Of course it was intentional uh, to dump fuel on the drone. It, and it certainly was not intentional to hit the drone. No sane pilot would do that. The pilot's lucky he's still alive. But I think it was clear they were trying to damage the drone, bring the drone down. Uh, I'm not suggesting a military response, but I think something like uh, expelling several dozen Russian diplomats uh, would teach them a lesson. There isn't much diplomatic activity going on between us and Russia. Mm. Let, let them go back to Moscow. Yeah, so far, Vladimir Putin hasn't learned any of the lessons, at least that, that President Biden has said he wants to teach him. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, it's good to see you as always. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. Go to NewsNationNow.com to find NewsNation on your television provider. And don't forget to subscribe. Click the red button to get more of NewsNation's fact-driven, unbiased coverage. I tried to make it Sunday.